Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, a local political expert weighs in on the president's first 100 days, homelessness on the state's American Indian reservations, and 30 years later, former Minnesota twin Al Newman looks back on the magical 1987 World Series. But first... President Trump this week announced new import duties ranging from 3 to 24 percent on softwood lumber coming into the U.S. from Canada. There are potential ramifications in a number of areas. MNN's Bill Werner is here to review some of them. Scott, first off, both of Minnesota's U.S. Senators, Democrats Amy Klobuchar and Al Franken, reacted positively to the move. Franken called it a major victory for Minnesota workers and their families. Klobuchar, a bit more tentative, issuing a written statement that, quote, new tariffs could bring welcome relief to workers, producers, and rural communities in Minnesota and across the country that have been hurt by unfairly traded softwood lumber, unquote. Klobuchar and Franken are talking about Minnesota's timber industry, but there's another major sector that could see effects also, and not necessarily in a positive way. That's the home construction industry. And to get a handle on that, we talked with Remy Stone with the Builders Association of Minnesota. I think the question that you should be asking is, is this a good news or bad news uh, issue for home buyers, right? Fair enough, fair enough. Um, yep. We always have recommended to our members and include the uh, the... We've always recommended to our members that their contracts include language allowing for material cost increases to be passed on to the customer, right? And so um, right now, we know that about 30% of the softwood lumber that we use in residential construction comes from Canada. And under this change, we... We already think, or because of the uncertainty that going into the lapse of this, that the absence of Canadian softwood lumber in the American marketplace has already triggered upwards of 22% increase in softwood lumber costs for construction. Okay, you're saying that the anticipation of this uh, additional duty has, has triggered a cost increase? Well, yes, because we've seen yeah. this happen before. Mm-hmm. Whenever there's uncertainty surrounding the trade pact, uh, we will see spikes in lumber prices. Does that get translated to a fairly substantial, significant cost, well, cost increase sure. as far well, as far as, yeah, as far I as home prices? I can give you a statistic on this. It takes about fifteen thousand board feet to complete a typical single-family home, and lumber the lumber price increase just in the first quarter of this year due to the uncertainty of the trade pact. Uh, added almost $3,600 to the price of a new home. That's uh, a fairly significant amount, uh, and therefore there potentially could be some demand, some impacts on demand. Have we seen any of that at all yet? We have not seen that, and and part of that is because of the way the market's been leading into this. Um, The other statistic that's recently come out is that new home sales uh, are through the roof right now. We are just uh, going gangbusters, and that's because there's been so much pent-up demand in the marketplace. So consumers are already looking to purchase homes, right? And so it's really hard to tease out whether right now, immediately with this pent-up demand, the uh, increase in softwood lumber will immediately temper people's purchasing decisions 
Okay. Okay. Yeah, so makes this sense. is coming at a time where we have people who are back into the marketplace because there's been so much pent up demand. So I don't have a direct correlation yet as to what that's going to do to the market. So we may have a situation here where people, as you say, have just been waiting for so long, they've decided they're going to pull the trigger, as it were, on a new home, and that a price increase might not dampen that enthusiasm or, or the market immediately. Immediately. Yeah. Immediately it won't. But we always have to remember that when new homes become more expensive, there's a drag upward of existing homes, and eventually what you do is you end up pricing people out of the marketplace. So any upward pressure on the price of a new home has a detrimental effect on the entire housing market for consumers. Sounds like what you're telling me is a little bit too, it's a little bit too early to assess exactly what the effects might be, but that potentially they could be negative. It could be. And there's a couple of good things that we, there are a couple of things that we could do to avoid any of those negative economic repercussions. Okay. Okay. Um, One is that we as an industry urge the United States government and the Canadian government to work together to create a long-term stable solution. Ten-year agreements may seem like a long time, but the reality is that ten years comes and goes pretty darn quickly. And what we already noticed in anticipation of this agreement lapsing and the the, uh, the uh, Canadian trade agreement going by the wayside is that we already saw a 22% spike just in anticipation of that. But the other thing, and there's a, there's a domestic solution also, and that would be to seek higher targets for timber sales here in our publicly owned lands. So we, there, there are some internal domestic solutions and there are some external um, trade agreement solutions that would provide more stability for that material in the marketplace. And the public land issue, of course, well, that's a combination of a state and a federal uh, land, yeah. right? So that's where the decision Yeah, and that, you know, yeah. that's one that, that that's very complicated and is not an easy, fast solution to providing lumber into the residential marketplace today, right? Yeah, that makes sense. So no, so we had some two two long term possible solutions that aren't going to be happening tomorrow to keep the cost of housing down. That's Remy Stone with the Builders Association of Minnesota. And so, Scott, as with most things in the economy, if you move one piece on the board, it affects a lot of other pieces. And we'll just have to see how this plays out in the coming months in Minnesota's housing market. Thank you, Bill. More Minnesota Matters after this. Adopt U.S. Kids presents Multiple Choice Parenting. Your daughter just had her first breakup. Do you A, put yourself in her shoes, How could he do this to you? And for Sheila, she she has split ends. B, console her. Oh, sweetie, this is going to happen a lot. Four, maybe five more times before you get married. C, take charge. Got to get this all straightened out. Keep a little talking to, man to man, mano a mano. Hey, Steve. Is now a good time? No? Okay, no problem. Bye. Or D, help her find a new boyfriend. I know a great place to meet boys. The internet. Nice, single, boys. Never mind. How about some ice cream? As a parent, there are no perfect answers. But you don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same. For more information on how you can adopt, visit AdoptUSKids.org. A public service announcement from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, AdoptUSKids, and the Ad Council. 
Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson. We've reached the benchmark of President Trump's first 100 days in office. I recently spoke with Hamlin University political expert David Schultz about what's happened so far, what we can expect moving forward, and just how significant those first 100 days may be. Well, the significance of the first 100 days is marked by Franklin Roosevelt's first 100 days when he took office in 1933 uh, in terms of all the reforms that he pushed through Congress um, as an effort to try to deal with the recession. And so that's always been somewhat of an unrealistic benchmark that people compare themselves to because there's no question that what happened in 1933 where the economy was, um, that what Roosevelt got through um, is never going to be beat in terms of a record. But people use that as a benchmark to get some kind of sense of, of what presidents can do. And it's also in those first hundred days, generally, when presidents have what we call the honeymoon period, where they have the most political capital to be able to move and are more likely to be able to play upon their their um, initial popularity to move things. And so partly artificial, partly realistic in a understanding that this is when presidents have their greatest opportunity traditionally to act because they have their greatest political capital and most popularity and approval ratings. And with that in mind, how is our current president doing on that honeymoon period? Not very well. And we start off by the fact that Trump defies things in several ways. First, he took office with the lowest approval rating of any president in, in probably since we've been doing surveys. And right now he has an approval rating that is, again, probably the worst of any sitting president after um, the first hundred days than we have a record for. So, so right off the bat, he's weakened in terms of the fact that, that he uh, doesn't have a high approval rating and weakened by the fact that we shouldn't forget that while he won the Electoral College, he did not win a majority of the, of the popular vote. But, and so he, he enters the presidency weakened, weakened also by the fact that um, he was not experienced in terms of working in government and has been slow to fill critical government positions. And so if we just look at it in terms of marks for what presidents are supposed to do, um, has he been successful in filling government positions? No, he has not. Has he had any major um, legislation passed by Congress? No. In fact, one of his major things he wanted to do, which was to push on, on health care reform, failed for now. Uh, he issued two executive orders to try to address the issue of, of immigration that the courts um, had halted. And issues in terms of, for example, he said he was going to get that wall built along Mexico. That's looking less and less certain. He didn't tear up the Iranian nuclear deal, um, and he has not uh, labeled China as a currency manipulator. So on many scores, um, he failed to live up to his core promises. His major success, Neil Gorsuch on the Supreme Court. And maybe if you could expand on this a little bit, but what do you see as his path towards turning this around? I think his path towards turning around... Uh, is going to have to be a few different things. One of them, I think, is in terms of foreign affairs. It's starting to happen. Um, that, that he is increasingly being captured or controlled um, or directed by the Washington foreign policy establishment, but I think is starting to modulate um, 
his, his views on foreign policy or, or, or take control in terms of what to do. That yes, he's talked about wanting to do things in, in North Korea and so forth, but I think the, the reality of, that, of, of what he can actually do um, is starting to dawn upon at least many of the people who are in that foreign policy establishment. Domestically, um, it's going to be interesting because there's a learning curve and it's not clear how much um, he, is, as a president, um, is, 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 is really learning to how to operate the levers of power and the levers of government. And so I think that's his real challenge at this point, is that if he doesn't figure out how to actually um, learn how to use those tools of government, um, he may be largely ineffectual um, you know, for, his, for his presidency. If we assume that what you're saying is correct, and as far as he's he's struggled in these first hundred days, what would you say that the Democrats have done to capitalize on that, and have they been effective up till now? They probably have not done very much to be effective, and in fact, I think they made some major mistakes. For example, in the filibustering of, of Supreme Court nominee Gorsuch, they basically pushed the Republicans into going for the nuclear option, and the Democrats have lost their ability to use the filibuster as a threat in the future. Uh, but beyond that, I think the Democrats have really done more just to let the Republicans um, show the divisions among the, within and amongst themselves, that there's the division between the presidency and Congress, and then within Congress, within the Republican Party, there's enormous divisions. And so I don't think the Democrats have had to do much. And in fact, I think their whole strategy has been let the Republicans self-destruct and will win in 2018. And that may not be enough of a strategy. They still need to articulate the alternative vision, the alternative way that they would do things. Instead, I think they're just sitting and kind of like watching by the, by the, um, the side um, to see what the Republicans will do to themselves. We'll all be watching both sides to see what happens. My thanks to Hamlin University political science professor David Schultz for his perspective. More Minnesota Matters after this. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. We asked kids what it took to be a dad. This is what they had to say. A father is always present. I mean, what, father, what real father figure can you have if they're not there? In order to be a good dad, you need to love, love your son. You need to put gas in your car so you don't break down in the middle of nowhere. And you need to make them breakfast. Yep. 
I mean just to maybe um, play like a board game with me or to just stay home and play um, some video games with me. Just to do like that one little thing is what I really look forward to. I'm not asking him to be a perfect dad, but he should try. He's just a constant force in my life. There's no other type of love like a dad's love because it's not comparable to anything else. Take time to be a dad today. Call 877-4DAD411 or visit fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. New research from the Wilder Foundation shows nearly 1,500 people on six Minnesota American Indian reservations are homeless or nearly homeless. MNN's Tasha Radel has more. That's right, Scott. At least 1,400 people living on the Red Lake, White Earth, Leech Lake, Mille Lacs, Boys Fort, and Fond du Lac reservations are experiencing literal or near homelessness in northern Minnesota. Joining me to take a closer look at this growing concern is Nicole Martin-Rogers, a senior research manager at Wilder Research, a division of the Wilder Foundation in St. Paul. Nicole, I know there's a lot of data in this report to plow through, but I'm going to pick your brain a little bit first. What would you say are some of the key issues that stuck out in your mind? One of the first things that I think is really important to recognize about homelessness and near homelessness on Indian reservations is that a lot of the homelessness that we see in terms of people actually going to shelters, emergency shelters and things like that, is really just the tip of the iceberg because much of the homelessness population is concentrated in that group of folks that we would define as near homeless, people who are doubled up with other families or living in some other substandard conditions or really precariously housed about to face eviction. And that is really a much um, larger population and um, has different service needs. So that's one of the um, really important findings is that um, we're looking at both people who are literally homeless and then those who are sort of right on the edge of becoming homeless. Um, a related point that I think is really important is that there's a misconception or a stereotype that culturally American Indians might prefer to live together in doubled up situations. And that's actually not um, what we find to be true in our study. We find that the vast majority of people who are doubled up would prefer to live um, with their own um, immediate family, but they're unable to do that because of um, lacking the resources to do so. And really where the cultural piece comes in is that these um, families would um, rather take someone into their own home and um, shelter one of their relatives um, in their own home, even when they're already really living in destitute um, situations themselves, that they might be, you know, not have running water or not have a functioning bathroom or have heat in their home, but they would still take in somebody else because culturally that's what we would do instead of letting someone go to a shelter. So I think that's a really important finding from the study. And, you know, I, I wanted to ask you, too, um, from, from the uh, people that you folks surveyed, do the, are these folks employed? Are most of them employed or unemployed? About two-thirds of the people that we surveyed are unemployed. And um, two-thirds of those are looking for work. The biggest barrier that um, the people that we surveyed cited in terms of being able to get a job is transportation. Um, although we also have, um, within the younger adults that we interviewed, um, among the um, homeless and near-homeless population on Indian reservations, 
60% of young adults lack a high school diploma or GED, so um, educational barriers may also be a factor in um, their ability to obtain employment. And another thing, too, that I saw um, that kind of stuck out in my mind was affordable housing, that there just wasn't enough affordable housing in those areas. Is that correct? That's correct, um, that... um, 35% have been on a waiting list for housing support, and the average length of time that they're on waiting list of those who are on a list is 21 months. So many people are on a waiting list for affordable housing. And when we say affordable, I mean it's really a limited um, uh, amount that they could pay. About one-fifth of the participants said they couldn't actually afford to pay anything for housing. $300 a month is the average that folks said that they would be able to pay for their housing. All right. Well, there's a, just a lot of information here. Nicole, was there any other area you wanted to hit on that maybe I didn't bring up? I think that um, the last thing that I would point out is just that there's um, a lot of things that go into someone maybe experiencing homelessness or near homelessness. And one of the things that we see most with this population is the very um, common um, Uh, pervasive uh, serious health conditions. That includes both physical, mental, and substance abuse conditions. Um, 7% of the people that we interviewed actually have all three of these types of serious health conditions, and 29% had two or more. So um, a substantial proportion of the population that's really dealing with significant health issues that would prevent their ability to be employed or maintain stable market rate housing. Um, And similarly, um, three-quarters of the participants said that they had experienced at least one adverse childhood experience. That's things like witnessing one of their parents being abused or living with someone who has an alcohol or drug abuse disorder or being um, abused themselves. And um, research has shown, a lot of research has shown that adverse childhood experiences relate to all sorts of problems later on in life, including homelessness and um, being able to um, maintain a job, being able to uh, be successful in school and things like that. And so, um, again, 75 percent of the people that participated in in this um, reservation study of homelessness and near homelessness had at least one adverse childhood experience. Thanks again to my guest, Nicole Martin-Rogers with Wilder Research. To view more findings from the American Indian Homeless Report on Northern Minnesota, head to mnhomeless.org. Back to you, Scott. Thank you, Tasha. Minnesota Matters will return after this. It's Thursday night, and you're grabbing drinks with some friends. Started off with a pitcher for the table, which quickly becomes two. There's pool. And there's the photo booth. All right, everybody, squeeze in. Say cheese. Followed naturally by an order of wings. And another. Can we get some extra ranch sauce? Then there's the ceremonial nightcap. So what are we doing this weekend? And lastly, it's back to the car, which, if you're buzzed, could be the most expensive night of your life. Getting pulled over for buzz driving could cost you around $10,000 in fines, legal fees, and increased insurance rates. Nothing kills a buzz like getting pulled over for buzz driving, because buzz driving is drunk driving. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. 
Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. Believe it or not, the Minnesota Twins are celebrating the 30th anniversary of their 1987 World Series championship. MNN Sports Director Mike Grimm caught up with one of the more likable and popular members of that title team, Al Newman. Fittingly, they talked at a high school baseball game this week. Well, Al Newman, can you believe it's been 30 years since you guys put on those World Series rings in 1987? Not at all. I tell you, it's been a long time. And as I, I, I say all the time to people, I never get tired of people saying thank you uh, because it was a monumental time, not only in our players' lives, but for the fans of Minnesota. Uh, I've made this place my home. It's a great place to raise kids, and, and the baseball is pretty good. You mentioned you made this home. You were a West Coast guy. What what, what kept you here You're sitting through some of these cold winters uh, in Minnesota? Well, you know, the people. Uh, you know, I got traded here in 87. Uh, we won the World Series championship, met great guys like Ken Herbeck, who had made his home here, Tim Lautner. Uh, we're all still friends. And uh, living here and raising my kids, I couldn't have picked a better spot. Uh, I'm more of a change of seasons type guy. California was too stale for me, same weather every day. When you think back to 87, 30 years ago, you guys really did capture the sports scene here. What, what stands out to you? Maybe a handful of memories that stand out, special ones? Well, you know, there, there's two games that uh, really blow me away. Uh, one was the day that we clinched a, a division tie. Um, there were 55 screaming thousand fans uh, here before the game started. They were ready to rock and roll, and I got a chance to start that game behind Burt Bly Levin. And then the second one, when we came home uh, from Detroit after winning uh, the division to go to the World Series, uh, there were 55,000 fans screaming, welcoming us back, and we hadn't done anything but qualify for the World Series. So uh, outstanding, as well as the parade, you know, things like that. But uh, just being here, uh, the, the people's love for the Minnesota Twins and, and the way the organization has not only supported me, but the fans here in the state of Minnesota. You guys beat the St. Louis Cardinals in a, in a really good series, a seven-gamer. Herbeck had the big grand slam. I mean, there's a lot of uh, memories there. But I remember the controversy. Whitey Herzog thought Bly Levin was balking every pitch. Remember all those things? And uh, it, was, it was pretty, pretty drama-filled. Gamemanship. Uh, that's what I call it as well as people saying Ken Herbeck pulled Ron Gant off the base. Uh, you know, there was no replay back in those days. Uh, and to this day, I attest that uh, his momentum took him off as well as Ken always did have a hard tag at first base and a lot of guys would complain and I'm sure that one there they'll still complain about to this day. How often do you think about your friend Kirby Puckett? Every day. Um, a lot of people probably forget I had a brain aneurysm uh, and I survived it after 30 days in a coma and uh, the you know a few years later uh, it took my best friend's life so uh, there's not a day that when I rub my head uh, I don't think of Kirby Puck, and that's the honest to God's truth. What's he meant to this community? I mean, even now you feel his impact. I mean, his lovability. Uh, he's a Mount Rushmore guy in Minnesota sports. Oh, most definitely. You know, he and um, he and um, Tony Oliva and guys like that, Tony, uh, uh, Carmen Killebrew. But this generation remembers Kirby Puckett. Uh, a lot of the coaches remember Kirby Puckett playing, how every day he showed up and played hard and uh, had a body that most people didn't see as a center fielder um, hitting the three-hole and doing what he did. So uh, he's inspired a lot of the guys who now are teaching the young kids how to play baseball. Why did you guys hit it off so well? Um, our personalities. Uh, you know, I tell people we were roommates. Uh, 
uh, back in the day and we'd fall asleep trying to wait for our turn to tell a story. Uh, we talked a lot, we laughed a lot, and, and believe it or not, we shared a few tears together, especially that one night after 87 when we won it. We sat in the back room, uh, it was about four or five of us, and uh, we just looked at each other and said, we're the world champs. And, and what a, I'm getting goosebumps now, telling, reliving the story, uh, but it, it's, it's what it was all about, it was who Kirby was. You, as we mentioned, stayed here in uh, the Twin Cities. What are you up to now? I know we're, as we talk, we're at a high school baseball game. Yeah, we're here watching Prior Leg play Lakeville North. And uh, I, right now I'm helping youth baseball. Uh, got a training facility up in St. Cloud called Acceleration Baseball Center. Um, I also have a foundation, the Al Newman Foundation, which helps support youth baseball, uh, buy shoes and, and gloves for young players. Uh, you know, because baseball does have some expenses. And if you can help in any way to, to help a young man who has talent, uh, I'm willing to try to do that. And as you help, I'm sure you would also take help financially and those kind of things with your organization. How, how can people get in touch and help you out? Well, I, I think first thing you could do is just contact myself or Sarah Fisher uh, at alnewmanfoundation.org. And, um, you know, just via email, we'll communicate. We do fundraisers all the time, and uh, they can participate. Very good, uh, and uh, it's uh, very fun, I'm sure, and gratifying to see kids when you start uh, teaching them at 12 years old, as you did some of these kids playing here at this high school game, and now they're varsity stars. Oh, man, it's, it's a great feeling. Uh, where does the time go? Um, I just enjoy the fact that, as I used to tell those young fellas, uh, you know, you aspire to be what you want to be. Uh, no one says you have to play in the major leagues, but if you're going to play baseball, give it a good effort, and uh, you never know. You can save your parents some expense. Uh, by getting a scholarship to college and yet learned a lot of life lessons along the way. You're one of our favorites. Thanks so much. Oh, thank you for having me. That's former Minnesota twin Al Newman and MNN Sports Director Mike Grimm. That's going to do it for this week. Thank you for listening, and please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station.